Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Rishmaui. I'm joined by the full cast and crew today, Andrew Wilson, Matt Anderson, and Alistair Roberts. Uh, we have the whole cast and crew because everybody wanted to be on to talk to our guest today, our special guest, uh, Dr. Tim Keller, who is on joining us to talk about his his recent book. If you don't know who he is, I'm kind of surprised if you listen to our show, but still, uh, pastor out in Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan, uh, best-selling author of The Reason for God and various other titles, but most recently, and the, the book we're having him on to chat about, is uh, Making Sense of God. An invitation to the skeptical. So, there's your intro. Great to have you on the show, Tim. How you doing? Great. I'm glad to be here, and I've listened to your podcast a couple of times, and I'm uh, I'm I'm uh, in awe of your uh, theological discourse. So I'm glad to be part of it. That makes me worry <laughs> that you don't you don't have better things to be doing. I'm I'm a little disconcerted by that. Oh man. <laughs> Any anybody who would listen to our show. We immediately distrust. That's right. Um, well, we wanted to have you on to chat about the book. We're all big fans. Uh, but I, just to start it off, probably the thing that might initially provoke people to wonder is just uh, why this book at all, right? You wrote The Reason for God, and that was a massive bestseller, kind of an, in, an intro book to you know their skeptical friends, their skeptical uh, neighbors or new believers and so forth. So why making sense of God an invitation to the skeptical? I thought we already had that invitation. So what, what, why this book? Oh yeah. Well, I just came to realize over the years that the reason for God is it was just my digest of relatively traditional, um, rational, rational apologetics. You know, it was, how do you know there's a God? How do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? How, how can you trust the new Testament? documents and all that I and it did help plenty of people I mean I, I know it has but I came to realize that it actually only helped people who already at least wanted Christianity to be true or at least were uh, thought it would be good if it was true you're not going to wade through all that unless you've got some motivation unless you're already leaning toward Christianity and then I realized well, what about all the people who don't care if it's true because they don't see a, it of, not only do they not see it of any per, personal relevance, but basically they see it as a um, Christianity as actually a bad influence. I mean, why would they ever want to think about it? So uh, there's a sense in which this is a, I call it a prequel to <laughs> Reason for God. It's for, uh, yeah. it's for people who actually would, would not think that Christianity made any emotional or cultural sense. And therefore, would not sit down and take even an hour to consider whether it made rational sense. So that's why making sense. I wrote. Sounds good. I'm going to pitch it to the guys for uh, more questions. Matt, do, yeah, did I'll, you I'll do you want to lean off? Yeah, I'll jump in. Oh, I, I mean, I thought it was I. I thought it was great. I I really enjoyed the book and was flicking through it again today. I reviewed it a couple of months back and flicking through it again today, just thinking, yeah, there's a lot of Books I wanted to buy and read off the end of it. I, I find that the, the level of the range of things you're bringing in and, and the different sources and ideas just really helpful and really stimulating. I, this this might sound like a little bit of a sort of cheesy question for this context, but what do you what do you think the the most 
challenging of those objections is for you personally when you're engaging with it. So, um, or not even objections, as you say, the, the sort of the sources of what you might call um, whether they're diffidence about religion or whether they're just under, underground reasons to not really take it seriously. Which of those are the ones which you feel have the most force? Or what's the one that you feel like? That's the one that when I'm writing this, I feel convinced by what I'm saying, but it takes me quite a lot of work to get back to a place where I feel convinced. Because I imagine anyone involved in apologetics finds some questions or objections more forceful than others. I just, Which is the one that you find most pressing, that most gets to you? Um, and perhaps you could talk a little bit about your response to it as well. But, but what's the one that you find is the strongest reason to disregard Christian belief? Well, I think uh, the, um, the middle part of the book tries to make a case that um, it, takes, it takes six things. It takes meaning, satisfaction, freedom, identity, justice, and hope. And it essentially tries to say that the secular world, um, well, first of all, it says that nobody can live without those things. The secular world tries to give them to you. Christianity, I argue, offers better resources to meet, uh, to address those issues. When I get to justice, I, I really work, I, I was really taken with Richard Baucom's, uh, uh he, he, he makes a case two or three times, one, one place in uh, the Bible and Mission. He also makes it in a an essay he wrote in a, in a larger book. It's called uh, The Bible is a Coherent Story. And his basic idea is that uh, critical theory try to get rid of the idea of any kind of meta narrative, uh, but it's kind of gotten to the end of its rope and realizes that how can you have a, how can you do justice unless you believe in something, some kind of meta narrative? And then he makes the case that Christianity is the is a, t a non totalizing meta narrative that is it's a it's a it's you say it's a moral absolute but it doesn't lead to um totalitarianism like other meta narratives do because it's uh because of its nature and he makes the case that uh it's uh it, it undermines injustice it's uh you know it's uh, jesus christ going to the cross it's uh you know he, he gives all the reasons why the Christian meta narrative should undermine oppression and undermine injustice, and therefore be a basis for doing justice, but not one that turns you into an oppressor yourself. Okay, I love that argument, and I make it in the book, and I've often made it, and basically I think it's a strong argument. But the real pushback that sometimes makes my own heart sick is, hey, if that's really the case, look at church history. I mean, if, if, if that's really true, then how in the world do you explain church history? Most of it, almost. Not just here and there, you know, the South, you know, the, the Dutch Reformed Church getting behind apartheid. We're not just ta talking about that. We're, it's almost like most of church history does not seem to bear that out. And I would say, to me, that's the biggest Achilles heel of, and yet, frankly... So, so God, I, I just today, I was reading, I, that's so, I'm just so intrigued that you say that, because just today I've been reading Dermot McCulloch's A History of Christianity, and uh, I actually found it one of the books that's most challenged my personal faith, in a, in a way. Yeah. Um, because, for exactly that reason, how do you, how do you process that, both personally and intellectually? Well, I'm... <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, the first question was, what challenges you the most now? What do you, how do you handle it? Uh, yeah. you know, yeah. you're, uh, boy, you're tough. This is a tough crowd. <laughs> Derek, I, I, I'm, Anderson I'm hasn't even asked his question. I know, I'm rethinking my, uh, my, 
uh, having, I'm rethinking my decision to accept your invitation. Um, well. <laughs> no, it's, I, I think that's what I mean by saying, I think up until recently, see, Richard, Richard's idea that it undermines, uh, it's, it's, the, it's, a, it's a meta-narrative that undermines oppression without making you an oppressor. You, I'd have to say, in a minority of cases, you really can see it working. You really can see uh, many, many places where uh, you, you have to go look at the places where. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Kyle Harper uh, wrote a. Uh, you know, he's a he's from the University of Oklahoma. He's an expert. He's a classics professor. I'm not even sure if he's a believer, but he's written about slavery, and um, he he says that it was Gregory of Nyssa, I think who was the very first person in the fourth century to say, on the basis of the image of God, all slavery is wrong. And, uh, and so Kyle Harper says, on the one hand, um, he says, let's face it, they said the, you know, uh, the, the, the early church to a great degree um, made its sort of, it made its uh, peace with slavery. But on the other hand, he says there's no place in the history of the world where anybody actually said what Gregory of Nyssa said. That, that he says there's no place in antiquity where somebody just said slavery is completely wrong. It was, it was just unprecedented. And it came from somebody who reflected on, on the image of God and the cross. And, and that's where the original idea in, in all of world history came, he thinks, from the Bible. So Kyle Harper wrote an, um, an essay to that, you know, to that effect. And when I read things like that, I say, yeah, there is a genius in there. They're really, Bauckham is right, in spite of the fact that, in general, the church has not seen the genius of it. So, I don't know. That's not a very good answer. That's why I'm unhappy. It's a very good, no, it's a very good answer. I mean, you have to find, you have to find things like that. You said there's no, way, there's no accounting yeah. for that sort of thing without the meta narrative of the Bible. But in general, no, people haven't seemed to re- recognize the genius. Anderson. You had a question? Sure. Um, Dr. Keller, thanks so much for the book. I I really did enjoy it a lot. Um, Switching gears, uh, handbrake turn here into something totally different. Um, You, I'm intrigued by what you do in, uh, I think it's your second chapter, full chapter. You you basically put secularism and Christianity uh, on an even plane. Say neither one of these has a burden of proof, um, we're just going to start at this with a, a sort of draw, and then you're going to make your case for Christianity uh, going forward in, in this sort of the center of the book, dealing with all these objections. Um, I'm curious about your moves there and, the, and, and whether or not, um, one, uh, the, the, whether or not it fits with your sort of broader reformed commitments to view secularism and Christianity as a kind of like equal partner in this dialogue. Um, so how that fits with your reform commitments. And two, I actually wonder, you know, when you say that um, secularists have their own kind of faith, they have their own beliefs. It's not just this rational thing. And, you, and, and the, the line is something like, you know, both secular people, both religious people believe. Do you think that that um, parallel distorts or changes the nature of, of the Christian faith and the, the potential uniqueness of it. Um, yeah. So I think, I think those are my two questions. 
So that's two questions, Matthew. Which one is it? it no, haha. <laughs> <laughs> the second one's easier, I think. No, I mean, you know, uh, certainly Luther talked about notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. You know, he talked about the difference between um, uh, belief and trust. You know, where you, where you, I, I would, I would say certainly when we're talking about beliefs, I'm talking about it in a very thin way, generally speaking, more intellectual. Though, yeah. though. There's no doubt that ideas have consequences. And so my, there is a, you know, that's the Pascal's wager. There's a sense in which, let's face it, you are betting your life that there is no God in a way. If you say there is no God, you can't prove it, then you're kind of, you know, you're, you're, you're make, you're taking a risk. So there's a certain sense in which everybody has to trust in what they believe, but I'm using the word, I'm using the word belief there in the thin way, not the, the full way of fiducia, I don't think. Um, the first question is a heck of a lot harder, actually. Um, <laughs> from one well, from one point of view, I say, you know what? What do you say on the inside? From the outside, I actually do think that that presuppositional apologetics, which w- there's various schools of thought within that, but the basic kind of continental reformed Kuiper Van Til approach is what I'm taking. So in that sense, I actually know people in my kind of reformed evangelical conservative, um, you know, uh, in, in our tradition, a lot of people recognize it. It also just seems like if you've ever read Alistair McIntyre wrote a uh, in the 2007 edition to After Virtue, he wrote a he wrote a long intro. And he talks about, well, how do you how can you argue? You know, he, he doesn't talk about worldview or he doesn't. He talks about traditions, of course. And he says. So if, if every tradition, in a sense, uh, is kind of self-contained, how can you, how can you critique a tradition from outside the tradition? So how can I sit in one tradition and, and critique the other tradition when I'm assuming the tradition's wrong, which means then my critique is kind of uh, not valid? He, he basically does the presuppositional thing. He says what you do is you, is you, is you call the tradition to be true to its own principles and show where it's smuggling things from outside of itself in order to handle problems within it. Um, and then you call them on that. So that's again, presuppositional apologetics. I know what you mean though, is, uh, in the classroom, the idea would be, we, you know, what, what Van Til would say is the Christian makes everything turn on God. So we presuppose God and the non-Christian makes everything turn on rebellion, you know, rebellious, uh, you know, human self-assertion. Uh, I actually do think I say that in there. If you read carefully, I just say it in a nice way, but on a, in a certain sense, I don't think I, I don't think I can say to, um, you know, I, I think McIntyre is right. You, the, basically the way in which you argue, um, the only fair way to argue is to call people to be true to their own principles, which means you got to show some respect uh, to their principles, and even Van Til and people like that would say, on the basis of common grace, they can't escape uh, uh, being in the image of God. They can't escape a lot about the givenness of their of their uh, nature as creatures of God, and therefore, inside their worldviews or traditions or whatever, there is going to be elements of truth. I mean, you know, some people would, you know, some 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 Kuiper. Kuiper people would say, well, they're really not true truth. Oh, you know, I'm not going to get into that. I don't care because uh, right. I'm a practitioner. And basically as a practitioner, I, I'm, I'm kind and polite about it, but I, I do think I would still be telling people that, 
um, essentially their approaches is are forms of self-salvation, and therefore they break down. And Christian approaches seeking letting Jesus be Savior, and that's the reason why they work. Yeah, so I think I agree with um, pretty much all of that. I mean, I think one of the the puzzles for me is if you're going to uh, make critiques from within one tradition to another tradition, uh, towards another tradition, it seems like that there is, like presupposes a a burden of proof, that there is no sort of neutral playing field where we could set both traditions up side by side and just weigh them up equally. It seems like if you are making the critique from within the tradition, the, the, the Christian tradition, then secularism actually does have a higher burden of proof. Yeah. At least, um, at, at least for anyone who's already a Christian and the same would be true if one's a secularist, right? Like yeah. you've got your internal reasons, but then I just, I just, I never like, it doesn't seem to me that, that starting from the neutral playing field is um, quite possible. It's not neutral. It's level. Okay, Matthew. I mean, the difference yeah. I'm, what I'm trying to do is it's a level playing field. You have no. So what I would say is to a secular person, you have a set of beliefs that are. And I, I say this very sentence. They're not empirically provable. They're not self-evident to most people in the world. And they are filled with a lot of their own internal problems and contradictions. And therefore, you are no different than any other religion on the face of the earth. And therefore, we uh, there's an equal burden of proof. It's a level playing field. I don't say it's a neutral playing field. I would much rather say from within your own tradition, here's where I think uh, what you're doing does breaks down. So in a way, I wouldn't say it's neutral. I would say it's level, and it's not the same thing. Yeah, um, that's fair. Would a would a uh, a fair way of uh, putting it is so I I, I I'm not skilled in in Van Til. It's a foreign world to me, but planning a is more where I, I learned some apologetics. So in a sense, you've all got basic beliefs you're assuming. Mm-hmm. Um, we have ours, you have yours, and you have you you all have unprovable basic beliefs, but which of these basic beliefs um, don't generate contradictions or which or don't don't um, don't screen out parts of the world that you you would have to deal with. Is that is that another yeah fair way of putting Yep. Okay. All right. Alistair, do you have a question? Yes. Um, I found your description of the fact that religion isn't going anywhere very um, helpful. But at the same time, I wondered how exactly is religion being changed by the influence of secularism? And one of the things on that line, following on from some of the things that Matt has been bringing up, um, just thinking about the way in which you talk about the subtraction narrative, the idea that um, secularism is what has left when you subtract narr- you subtract religion from um, society. But at the same time, I wonder whether there's a sort of inversion of the subtraction narrative within certain forms of Christian apologetics, where adrift on the sea of secularism, we're all getting, as it were, scurvy. And so we need the um, <laughs> su- supplement of lemons in our diet. Um, and that's religion. Um but yet we're not actually questioning the fact that we've, the, di- the diet has completely changed and something that was once woven into the warp and woof of society, every single aspect of our reality, has now become a sort of marginal thing, a sort of meaning that we must add in super addition to this fundamentally buffered secular reality. 
And along that lines, I was thinking particularly of your statements very early on in the book where you talk about a secular state. A truly secular state would create a genuinely pluralistic society and a marketplace of ideas in which people of all kinds of faith, including those with secular beliefs, could freely contribute, communicate, coexist and cooperate in mutual respect and peace. And I was thinking just a few weeks ago, Poland had this public event where they declared Jesus Christ to be the King of Poland. And this was a public recognition on the part of the state as well, not just the church, of Christ's authority within the realm of Poland. What's wrong with that sort of thing? And is there a sense in which you're extending the sort of the fundamental problem of secularism by looking for this secular state that doesn't commit to any religion or other? What do you have against Poland? <laughs> By the way, uh, Alistair, I, I don't think any American listeners are going to know what scurvy is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly a word I did not expect to hear. In this well, I hope they, they, I hope they never find out. Well, <laughs> I hope not either. But actually, that, that well, frankly, that there, there may be a bit of a divide here between the American and the European. I, I as an American... It, it, it looks to me like a lot of the problems that uh, world Christianity has had has to do with this idea of a state church. Or, a, um, I mean, just from what I could tell, you, uh, if, if, if the government says, you know, we're a Christian country or um, we are, you know, that, that this is the faith of our country, uh, then people in power know that they've got to this is now this is an American point of view. All right. I'm not completely defending it, though. I'm sympathetic to it. Then what it really does it means that in some ways Christianity gets in bed with power in order to be respectable, in order to be elected, in order to have power. I've got to be commit. You know, I've got to be, uh, you know, I've got to be an Anglican if I can go to, to go to Oxford or Cambridge up until what, 1840 or something like that. And what that just naturally does is it alienates the masses. It, it certainly creates a nominalism. Um, it, it, it seems to be almost asking for, uh, that, that Christianity ends up becoming a narrative of oppression. So I don't know. I mean, that's the reason. So on the other hand, uh, touche, um, there is no such thing as real neutrality. I'm just saying, you know, Rowan Williams and a couple other people, Rowan Williams gave some kind of talk to um, the Vatican, I don't, I forget, some years ago, he talked about two kinds of secularism. I think the way he, the, the name, sometimes they talk about programmatic secularism and procedural secularism. Have you heard the terms? Um, a procedural yeah. secularist government is trying to be an empire, is trying to be an umpire, excuse me. And do you have umpires? You know, in other words, a referee. Uh, someone who is just simply saying, "Here we have umpires and you have scurvy." Yeah, I know. <laughs> I just, I wonder because they have cricket and we don't know. I, I just don't even know what the categories are there. It takes have days. Umpires. You know, you know, cricket. Okay. Yeah. You realize that baseball is basically cricket with a reformation. I just want you to know that. <laughs> oh, Professor who is cricket with a short attention you span. Guys, <laughs> you guys have papist sports. You have papist sports. So anyway. <laughs> there you go. No, but I, I would say I do think that you need to call the – I think it would be better to have a nation that's trying to have a government that doesn't uh, 
you know, programmatic secularism means the, uh, is basically imposing secular beliefs on everything, as opposed to procedural secularism, where secularism, which is just, it's trying to be as neutral as possible. It will never be neutral because we know there's no neutrality. It will be affected. Even the idea, frankly, of freedom and pluralism is, I think, kind of a Christian idea, frankly. Uh, so, I mean, most good philosophers and thinkers know there's no such thing as neutrality, but it's still better than saying that uh, Christ is the king of our, of our country. So that's my American take. I'm quite willing. I know Oliver O'Donovan, even Leslie Newbigin didn't see it that way. And I, I, I understand that. And I, I, that would be a great thing to, to have a whole podcast on sometime. Just, just don't invite he me. Just, I suppose the question. He just, he just cut <laughs> off the O'Donovan defense. He just cut off the O'Donovan the defense from Anderson. Man. Yeah. He the knows. question behind the question is really about the way in which realms of life that were formerly seen as very religious, and there wasn't this distinction between this religion, religious realm of life and the secular realm of life, which we very often operate in terms of. And the state is just one example of that. But there are many other areas that we might think of. And... Behind that question is the question of, is there a danger that in our apologetics we take for granted this sort of um, removal of religion to this realm beyond the secular, this realm that's needed in addition to the secular, but isn't something that pervades the entirety of our lives? Mm -hmm. I, I have to tell you one thing. I think the average person who is a secular, a, a thoroughly secular person, if they didn't read that page in which I said, oh, by the way, I'm okay on a secular state, they'd be afraid to proceed with the book because they would actually feel that this is just a, a another Christian effort to take over our society. And um, so there's a sense in which, even though I, I do appreciate the concerns in some ways, I, um, and not only, I believe what I said there, but I also know that it's something that a lot of uh, non-Christians actually almost need to hear, or they just they just don't want to talk to you any longer. Yeah, and, and uh, that may be a specifically American uh, point of view as well, right? Where our religious discourse has been uh, dominated in public by lots and lots of people who have uh, worked very hard to try to take over. Um, at least that's, that's been the sort of popular narrative. And so, um, it has, it has different connotations here in the States, I think, than in the UK where there isn't that sort of anxiety among right. the Christian, uh, populace because they've already taken over because the queen is the head of the church. Um, so they don't have to they're just used that. to, they're used to monarchical oppression. So just what's one more layer. That's, that's right. all. That's, that's my, that's my two cents there. Um, I, I do have a question uh, regarding, and now I'm kicking myself because I didn't mark which particular chapter it was, but the the stuff that grabbed me the most in this book was um, just the, the questions of, of, of self and identity. In a sense, a lot of the, a lot of the heart, a lot of, a lot of the heart of the book seemed like an expansion of one of your chapters in the reason for God on um, Christianity being a cultural straitjacket as well as, um, just that sense of self uh, uh, as kind of living out your living out your identity, and I, I guess my question is, um, 
why did you think to expand that one as 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 big as you did? What what are the what are the particular pressures and questions that you're looking to either address or cut off um, that you maybe didn't didn't ex- like in a sense um, you didn't broadcast like oh and if you deal with this here are the five applications uh, to issues. But I, I guess what are some of the what were some of the driving um, pressures to 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 explore the notion of identity more fully? Well, you're right. It, it, it is uh, it's it is a big part. I've also found. I mean, first as a practitioner, I got to say that the a um, hundred years ago, if you said if you're preaching a sermon and you said um, um, so many of you are finding your identity in your work, others of you are finding identity in political causes, but you need to find your identity in Christ. I think uh, even a hundred years ago, nobody would have known what the heck you're talking about. I mean, we, we just, we, we were not therapy. The culture of the therapy, you know, the triumph of the therapeutic hadn't happened yet. Uh, now that's, that's, part of our lingo, of course. And actually, I found that when I'm preaching and just just almost anybody here, at least in the States, that when I say something like that, rather than say, instead of using the language of faith and trust, I use the word identity, they immediately get it. And also, the other good thing about it is uh, by using the, uh, the idea of identity in your work versus identity in Christ, you're not just talking about a kind of notional belief. One of the problems is with saying you need to believe in Jesus. Uh, that actually doesn't convey much. It, it just means like I got to start believing, meaning in my head I have to assent to this or that proposition. But finding your identity gets the idea of a heart, uh, trust, I mean, life-based. It, it, it just conveys almost immediately. So that's So at a certain practical level, Derek, I, I start. I use the word because it actually, it, it frankly, it communicates well. But the other thing is, I've just gotten into uh, into a lot more into Charles Taylor in the last couple of years. I appreciate him tremendously. And I, what I liked about Charles Taylor was, um, I recently reread his lectures, his Massey lectures from 1991, that have been have been uh, published in in Canada. It's called the Malays of Modernity, but in uh, in the States. Oh. It's called The Ethics of Authenticity. It's, it's a bunch of lectures. It's a short book. Harvard University Press or Belknap Press puts it out. And what he says there, let, let me give it to you in a nutshell. What he says basically is that um, the, um, the idea of being authentic, the eth- he calls it the ethic of authenticity, uh, is eating itself up because it doesn't have any, um, uh, doesn't have any moral background to it. Uh, so he, 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 he says, he says the idea that you can have to be true to yourself, you have to look inside yourself and be true to whatever's in there. And you shouldn't let anybody else tell you what's right or wrong for you. You have to define yourself for yourself. He says is total nonsense. And he, and he, uh, gives an example. He says, for example, I've never heard anybody say the reason that I, here's my identity. Here's why I'm significant. I am exactly the same height as a tree on the Siberian plain. Um, you know, there, there's a tree on the Siberian plain that's five foot 11 and I am too, and that's why I'm significant. And he says, the reason nobody says that is because we actually are not getting our sense of significance from within. 
there are moral values out there. Like we might say, I'm the num- I'm the best, uh, I'm the best player of a club, you know, you know, of a harpsichord in Europe. That's how I get my significance. So he say, he says there are there are there's got to be a background of moral values um, that we assume if we are going to have an authentic identity. So he makes this case of instead of just knocking the ethic of authenticity and modernity, we can retrieve it. Uh, we can actually say, hey, there's a lot of good stuff. In fact, a lot of this emphasis on the individual self and looking into your heart and all that came from Augustine and it came from Christianity. We just have to, in a sense, uh, retrieve it. We have to uh, reform it. We have to, uh, um, and that's what I'm trying to do. And he's also, Charles Taylor also believes, you know, his book, Sources of the Self, that the, the quest for identity in the modern self is kind of at the essence of what makes modernity different than, you know, the former ages. So I feel like by yeah. taking, a, taking a term that everybody understands in a way, um, showing how Christianity in a way can retrieve it, uh, almost salvage it, from where it's going, which is incoherence. Uh, that's something that Taylor wants to do. I'm just trying to do it at a more popular level. That's why I, that's why I'll yeah. emphasize on identity. No, it's so important. I, it was, I was thinking about this, um, surprisingly enough in, uh, the, the Disney movie Moana, my wife and I went and saw it. Um, and at the center of Moana is this discussion of identity and uh, it's one of the most hilariously incoherent things I've ever I've seen. But Moana, the young girl, is talking to the demigod uh, Maui, and Maui's working through his personal issues of being abandoned as a human child and whatnot. But but she says this line to him, something along the lines of, "You may have been chosen by the gods, but only you decide what makes you Maui." And um, so it was this wonderful blend of polytheism and self-expressive individualism and and uh it was just radically incoherent but it's pitched at at yeah. you know ten, 10 year olds five you know five year olds so this is this is what we're this is this is canon this is what we're raised with and so i, I do think it's pervasive i just um yeah i i just so i thought that that section was probably you know i thought the whole thing was helpful but i thought the most most helpful thing about the book is the the deeper expansion of an exploration of uh of just the crisis of identity. Yeah, that's the re- uh, that's real apologetics, Derek. Real apologetics today is not evidence of the resurrection. It's it's basically, you might say, it's critiquing and reconstructing the the modern idea of identity. You got to show that it's incoherent. It doesn't work. Uh, here's how it will work. That's what that's what Taylor calls retrieval. And Christian preachers need to be doing that. You can do it. You can do it in your sermons. And as virtually no one's trying, by the way, but there we are. There we are. Alistair, do you have a thought? Question? Yes. Um, I'll be interested just in your work of apologetics more generally. You talk a lot about the sort of questions that people have about meaning, hope, um, these sorts of things. But then you also talk, on the other hand, about the very lived and practical dimension of search, a quest for meaning. And I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on how you balance the the practical art of living um, and the way that apologetics speaks to that and the more speculative work of reason and trying to discern a meaning and order to the universe. How do we tie those two things together in apologetic practice? I'll be interested to hear 
your reflections upon that and your experience? Well, um, I think it's not that hard. I mean, the way I did it in the book, or the way I would do it in shorthand, um, on meaning is, do you have a meaning in life that suffering can't take away from you? Because you're going to suffer. So, uh, the, um, you know, I read a little book by Terry Eagleton. Uh, it's a, it's an Oxford University Press, very short introduction on the meaning of life. And it's really, really good. In fact, I, I, I used, I relied on it heavily. I even noticed, um, I guess, Andrew, uh, you, uh, in your review that you did of my book for the Gospel Coalition, you, you use that chapter as a, a, an example. And where Terry Eagleton pointed out was that people used to care about the meaning of life, and now they don't as, so much anymore. You know, the postmodern era, uh, people are laughing at that, whereas the, uh, in the 20th century, everybody was concerned that we've lost meaning because we've lost God. And that was, it was very, very helpful to me. But in the end, Terry... Eagleton comes back and basically says, you know, you still can't do without it. And one of the problems is you can't face suffering without it. He actually mentions that. And uh, so I think it's actually pretty, th this is my apologetic, Alistair. I would say if you're, it's very simple. I said here, it's not, by the way, this is not apologetics for Christianity at this point. It's for any kind of religion. I say, if your meaning in life is, um, you know, to get good karma or it's to sleep with your ancestors, um, you know, and not be ashamed in their great presence. Or if it's, um, going to heaven when you die, uh, in other words, if, if, if the meaning in life is basically something beyond this world, then suffering can actually help you. It, it almost can enhance your meaning. It can drive you more deeply into your meaning to embrace it more. If your meaning in life is, is just being happy in this, this world, then suffering takes it away from you and you're without meaning. And that's the reason why um, I quote in that chapter, some anthropologist said, says that um, Western secular culture is the worst culture in the history of the world at preparing its members for suffering. It, it, and so, so that's very practical, right? I mean, you're asking what I, what I try to do at that point is say, well, look, I, I'm not going to speculate about meaning in life. I'm going to say, do you have a meaning in life that that will be with you through suffering instead of being destroyed by it. And I think as a preacher, that's how I would do apologetics. Uh, maybe in a book, I'd be a little more abstract, more footnotes and notes, but that's basically how I do it. And so following on from that, how do you have any thoughts for how we can create communities and contexts within which the apologetic task of directing people towards a true Christian meaning in life can be empowered and rendered more effective. Um, because often I think the context within which we deliver our apologetics is very crucial for yeah. how effective it is. Oh, more than that. I would actually say every single one of these chapters would have to be embodied or, or the apologetics not going to work. So, for example, if the, if the justice chapter is going to, which we've already discussed, the justice chapter would have to be embodied in a community, uh, which means if Christian churches are famous for the way in which they take responsibility for their neighborhood's problems, especially justice and mercy and, you know, need. If, um, uh, if we're famous, for example, by the way, when it comes to the meaning and suffering thing, are we, a, are we a good place for sufferers? 
Does the church, is the church a great place for sufferers? Or do Christians suffer well? Um, so every single one of those chapters has to be embodied in, in a community or which, you know, Newbigin says is the, you know, the, the Christian church is the hermeneutic of the gospel. So I would actually say our apologetic will be absolutely, um, it will fall flat without it, it actually being embodied. You have to point to our community to say, see, it works. Larry Hurtado's new book, uh, Destroyer of the Gods, and also that little lecture he did. They, but there's two books that came out in 2016. One is called Why on Earth Would Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? And that was a that was a Marquette University lecture. And then he wrote a new book called Destroyer of the Gods. And he's just basically looking at the question of why did Christianity succeed in the uh, when it did. And basically it was there was a public apologetic. It was a cultural apologetic, but it was rooted in the the counterculture of the of the Christian church. So what you're saying is not unimportant at all. It's absolutely critical or we're not going to make any get any traction at all. Fellas, any, any follow-ups there? So that was a that was a, that was an excellent silence. Um, <laughs> was, no, was I, everyone was being really polite. We all of all of our questions have been clear, been solved. Um, <laughs> can I ask something completely out of left field? Or is, is is there is there scope for something? Do you, just do you have left fields in in cricket? Is that <laughs> <laughs> how do you know what a left Sorry. field is? <laughs> well, I'm unfortunately all the people who don't have scurvy tell me all about it so often that I, I cur we have curveballs as well. Actually, we I started saying googly in an American context, and they just stared at me like I had three heads, so I had to revert to curveball. It was a bit of a, I think googly is a more evocative. On that well, anyway, um, yeah, no. Th this so this is a this is a question where which I don't think I might be wrong because I read the reason for God a while back, um, but I wonder. Um, this is a question that occurs to me as a, a potentially apologetic objection to Christian belief, which I haven't heard you on. And I just wondered what your take on it was. And so this is in that sense, this is completely out of nowhere. Um, but so the argument would go something like so the fate of the unevangelized, right? Kind yeah. of related thing that you have, yeah. you hold to a, a traditional perspective, but not in a sort of, this is a moral problem because I think there are good Christian responses to that, but more just a, I think almost a statistical problem. Almost you, when you look at the world population now, you look at the world population for most of, you know, human history that we've had a good guess at. The number of people who are, who have either heard the gospel and rejected it, or have never heard it. And obviously, you can do the yes, but angels appear in dreams to Muslims thing. And I do. I know obviously that I've met people for whom that's been true, and so totally persuaded of that. But feel like it's probably not enough to get out of. Well, there's, you know, if you hold to your fairly conservative theology of what believers are, and then at the same, you know, and you're sort of your one John and your Paul on, on what it takes to be a believer, and at the same time look and say, well, God's created a world in which all of these people are, to all, for, as far as we can see, not believers. I just wanted, there are a number of different ways of coping with that objection. I just wondered which one you tended to use when people asked you about it, because it's something that often comes up, and I don't think I've heard you on it, so I just wondered if it's something you'd written about or thought about before and oh yeah no, that's fine that's great um no i've avoided the question both in reason for god and well obviously making sense it wouldn't have been appropriate but it could have been in reason for god and i just um i would much rather talk to people about that um verbally more informally than to put something down uh i know i have a 
uh, Dan Strange has got a, you know, his, I guess it was his doctoral dissertation on um, yeah. the unevangelized. He, he yeah. I looked at his appendices. There's like, he's got like nine or 10 different conservative evangelical, basically nine or 10 different answers to the question. What about the, the uh, people never heard? And I, I looked at him and I said, gee, no wonder I don't want to write about this when you have that many different questions. Here's what I do. Uh, so actually, do you know Nick Kristoff? Do you know who he is? Uh, he writes the New York yeah. Times. He wrote, he, he, I did a, I did something with him, a public event with him, and then he wrote me a bunch of questions and I answered them and they may end up in a New York Times column, I'm afraid, but which is fine. I, he told me he might use them. But that was one of his questions. He says, is Gandhi in hell? You know, uh, he was a good man. Is he in hell? And what about all the people never heard? So there I was being asked by, I said, oh, gosh, I've avoided this in every, uh, in, you know, in, in public. Now I get, now this might be the New York Times. Here's what I said. The one is that this is what I would say to anybody. Number one, uh, the implication usually behind that question is that why can't all good people go to heaven? So that's why he mentioned Gandhi, you know, or Gandhi. Who knows? It depends. You say tomato, I say tomato. But anyway, uh, the he, he, he mentions him because there's a good person. Is he in hell? And I said, well, the first thing I got to tell you is this. Christians, uh, the reason Christians believe you can only be saved through Jesus Christ is because they don't believe good people, any good people can go to heaven at all. We, we deny the premise. And then I go in and say, look, if you say good people can go to heaven and bad people can't that's exclusive because i know an awful lot of good people and bad people and a lot of the good people are good because they've actually had fairly good backgrounds and a lot of the bad people are bad because they've had actually pretty nasty backgrounds and so if you say i think all good people should go to heaven that seems more inclusive but actually it's uh, pretty exclusive and if you say uh, anybody no matter how messed up they are can go to heaven if they just admit that they're messed up and they believe in Jesus Christ, I said, well, that's exclusive too, but it's a more inclusive exclusivity, frankly, than to say that uh, only, you know, all good people can go to heaven. Then somebody comes back and says, well, maybe what, what, what if God just lets everybody go to heaven? And the answer is, well, then now you've got another problem with injustice. Uh, your whole problem is you feel like it's unjust to say you have to come to Christ to be saved. But now if you say, well, God saves everybody, now you've got another kind of injustice, because what about all the really evil people? What about people who've really done terrible, terrible, horrendous things? Now you're saying there's no di differentiation. And I say, you know, the, the psalmist certainly believed there was a God of justice who was going, who were going, who was going to, uh, you know, make everything uh, in the end. He was going to uh, tie up all loose ends and give her people what they deserve. So I say, now we get back down to the question of finally, you know, say, so the first thing I do, Andrew, is basically I try to show that I say, well, how would you like salvation to be meted out? And I usually knock down their ways as every bit as problematic as my way. <laughs> so that but then finally, I have to admit, look, I don't completely know how God can offer salvation through grace only through Christ and still be fair. I'm not totally sure I know how. And then I usually say, let me tell you about middle knowledge. And I give them an example of the middle knowledge answer. And the middle knowledge answer is, you know, God knows what you would have done if you had the chance. And therefore, sure. no, but nobody that has the, it doesn't have the chance would have taken the chance. 
And I said, now, what do you think of that? And almost every time people say, oh, that explains it. I said, well, I don't believe it. <laughs> I, always say, I say, I don't believe there's any warrant in the scripture for it. And I say, without getting into detail, it's just not my way of, it's not how I understand free will and God's sovereignty. But see, I said, because that, that story has always helped me, the middle knowledge story has helped me, because even though I don't think it's the way in which God can be just and still offer salvation only through Christ, that proves me, obviously, God's got a way. I just don't know what it is. In fact, I can even think of some ways that probably aren't the right ways, but just because I can't think of a good way in which God could be both just and offer salvation only through Jesus Christ, doesn't mean there can't be a good way, does it? I'll say, just because you can't think of a good way, does that prove there is no good way? No, of course not. So basically, I knock down all the alternatives. I use middle knowledge as a kind of bait. Then I say, no, that's not the way I believe. But that does show that there's probably a way that we just haven't thought of, and therefore I rest in that. That's my answer. So you use William Lane Craig in, a, in an Alvin Plantinga form in order to stay Calvinist. Well, what I know, no, what I yeah, see, the, the point is, what I do is I back away. I got this from a guy, uh, Peter Van Ingwingen, somewhere, somewhere in Wagen, somewhere says that that um, he, he's tried to actually, and let's not go here, by the way, he's trying to reconcile Genesis with the idea of evolution. And I remember at one point I read where he said, uh, we don't really know what how to do it but if i could he was looking for a story that might not be true but if you if he if you had a story in which that that might plausibly true then you can sort of rest you, you know what i'm saying he's he says yeah, e even if you yeah. yeah even if you come up with a story that you can't prove is the true one that accounts for all the things we know it does at least put you at rest to say well there can be a story in which all the things yeah. that are true and so in a way, that's what I did. You, I, so I use middle knowledge. The reason I don't want to put it into print generally, um, and by the way, I don't do it you know, with Nick Kristoff either, is um, I don't want to support it. I don't believe in the middle knowledge solution, frankly, at all. But by well, using, using yeah, I, it, I bring a person in. That's all. Yeah, no, I was just playing off the fact that that's sort of what Alvin Plantinga does in God, Freedom, and Evil. He he floats the possibility that libertarian free will oh, oh, yeah. is true. And in which case, that would get us out of the logical problem. Not saying it is, but it could be, in which case maybe there is another oh, one oh, oh, and yes. so on and so forth. So, it is like that. So, yeah. But I was just being playful. Yeah. Well, the, the, the well, question, um, actually, sorry, we're going to have to finish now, aren't we? I, actually, we, I we, a, we probably have to wrap up. Behind the question was, yeah, that's fine. I will have to wait for another day. I'm sure we'll have... Plenty of podcast opportunities with Tim Keller to be able to ask him all of the questions about this issue. Absolutely. <laughs> we should we have a regular. I have to take it to my grave. Um, but yeah, no, that's great. That's, that's but great. Andrew, that actually does. I mean, I've, I've been talking to people at least almost 30 years about it. It actually does help. It's just that all you want to do on that is disarm people. No, to be honest, my, my concern was never just, you don't have to answer this now, but my concern wasn't what do you so much what do you say to other people it's just do, the moral con question you have yourself about going there are seven billion people on earth and only two billion of them seem to be believers and of those if you are a calvinist about the way you think about what salvation is you might even question some of them as oh, well. so oh 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 that is a moral question about the scope of salvation. let me speak to that. that that's that's what i was andrew let me speak to that i do think you're all a lot younger than me i don't know quite what you are but you're a lot younger than me I actually do think that when I was your age, it troubled me more 
And I do think that there's there's so many places in my life where I've seen God uh, bring things together that I thought could he could it just couldn't be done. I, I mean I, I don't I mean I think I do think that there's a um, I, I actually do think that that I don't have I don't trust my rational pow powers of exhaustive surveillance. I just don't I don't feel that I can I, I actually don't feel that. I don't feel confident that I should be troubled by that. Uh, it's yeah. that, that's it. I think as the years have gone by, I I felt like, gee, you know what? It looks very troubling, but you know, how do I know? So I, it actually has is emotionally, I'm not as troubled as I used to be, and I do think I hope it's because I've increased my faith in God. I hope it's not because I don't care. I, I think I think I think it's the the latter. But anyway, sorry. Yeah, well, that's very helpful. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. This has been a, a great conversation, very illuminating. So thanks for, thanks for coming on the show. We, we hope you'll come back. We hope you didn't scare you off entirely. No, this is a show. Um, now you tell me. <laughs> now, now I tell you, it's, this is recorded. Uh, it's good. Well, yeah, thanks again for this. Thanks again for coming on. Uh, if, for, for listeners who are interested uh, once again, the book is Making Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptical. Uh, and then also, if you're interested in any Christmas literature, uh, he just came out with another book. What, what was, what's the name of that one? It's, it's on Christmas. I don't have that one. It's called Hidden Christmas. Hidden Christmas. And so there's a secret to find there. It's hidden, but you have to open the book to, to find out what's in it. So um, go ahead and check that one out as well. Uh, but for now... Thank you for listening. Uh, and if you want to check out show notes and links, that would be at uh, mirrororthodoxy.com. But for now, take care and we'll catch you next episode.